that the focus by the Democratic Party on identity politics has cost them? I think it has, yeah, to yeah. some degree. Obviously, it has uh, solidified our position among minority groups. Right. When we get overwhelming support, the African American community is the base of bases of the Democratic Party. You know, overwhelming six, seven, eight to one uh, support. But why? Uh, not because they are homogeneous uh, right. group, because they're not. They have various views, just like every other group has. But they have a consensus on the Democratic Party is the party that cares about me, sees me, and tries to, tries to help. Right. Uh, but in doing so, uh, others thought, well, that meant we weren't their party. And what we need to talk about, education is of interest to all groups. That's not an identity group issue. You talk to the Hispanic community, and they, sure, are they interested in immigration? Yes, they are. But they understand that education is one of their number one issues as it is for the white community and the black community and the Asian community. So we need to be talking in terms of uh, all the community, all Americans. But isn't the danger that if you don't talk about identity politics, don't talk about, say, um, social injustices, police brutality, uh, immigration-related issues, then um, minor crucial minority segments of the Democratic Party will say, there you go again, taking us for granted. They're, you know, focusing on the middle class, which we, the minority community, hear as the white working class, which we hear as white people. Robert, I don't think we can talk about uh, uh, the generic to the exclusion of understanding that some of our constituent groups have particular challenges right. that we are prepared to and do deal with. So you've you, you got to walk and chew gum. I don't want to talk generically and exclude the specific concerns that some of our constituencies have that are unique to them. We're dealing with DACA now, right. and we are passionately for DACA. Now, DACA does not affect most Americans. Actually, I would argue it affects all Americans. Right. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, we're, we're focused on that. But it should not be to the exclusion of making sure that uh, all the families in Texas and in the states you mentioned, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, understand that we are for them as well, and in fact, have been for them over the years. So you got statistics to buttress me, that contention. Let, you know, you talked about, at the, at the beginning, message. And we all talk about message. Trump had a message, make America great again. Uh, Roosevelt had a message, a new deal. But then we had a fair deal. We had a new frontier under John Kennedy. Uh, and we, we, we now have a, a message that we call the better deal. As you know, uh, Speaker Ryan talks about a better way. And if you read their book that they, they issued in 2010, uh, it was replete with a better way. So it's, that's not new, they're right. just applying it. Uh, so we now have a, a better deal, uh, better jobs, better wages, better future. That's our headline. And, and that's as good a headline as any other fair deal, new deal. Okay, but what, is that, what does that mean? And what I'm going to be arguing uh, is that really whatever our slogan is, you'll look at our performance and see who's given you a better deal, a better way, a fair deal, a new deal. 
uh, because it seems to me ultimately that's the, that's the test. And the analogy I make is uh, if, somebody, if I'm the manager of the baseball team and somebody comes in and tells me, uh, you know, I, I've hit an average 325 over the last uh, five years, and somebody else comes in to me and says, you know, I hit 340 last year, but I hit 270 uh, the four years before that, who do you hire? You hire the guy that hit 325 for five as opposed to 340 for one. Uh, and so I'm going to be arguing this. Yes, the better deal, but you don't have to just take us because we have a slogan. Take us because we have a record. Take us because we've delivered. Let me read you some statistics. It took 68 years, that is 48 to the end of the Obama term. Uh, Democrats uh, had the presidency 32 of those years. Uh, uh, Republicans had uh, the presidency for 36 of those years. And as you recall, you can go through it now, uh, we, 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 you know, we had Truman, then we had Eisenhower, then we had Kennedy Johnson, then we had Nixon, and then we had Ford, and then we had Carter. My point being, it wasn't just one string of Democrats or one string of Republicans, so you can't argue that it was, well, you were lucky during that period. Uh, we were interspersed. The average of the 32 years that uh, a, a Democrat was president of the United States, the average GDP growth was 11.4%. Average over 32 years. Under Republicans, uh, what, what did I say 11, excuse me, yeah. I skipped a 4.1%. Yeah. Significant difference. 4.1% average GDP growth. Under Republicans, for 36 years, the average was 2.5%, a 1.6% difference. That is millions of jobs. I'm going to tell you that figure a little later. The stock market. We've seen a spike in the stock market uh, a little bit uh, under Donald Trump. He's taking credit for that, as every president would take credit for that. Look what I've done. I would argue it's not a long enough time for us to know. Um, the general, over 32 years, 36 years, 68 years, average stock market per annual increase under Democratic presidents for 32 years was 11.4%. Under Republicans, 4.7%. Less than half the growth. We'll see what Trump does. But let me give you this starkest example recently that all of you would remember. Under Clinton, Stock market went up 225% from his first day to his last day. Now, if you had a 401k, that means it doubled, more than doubled. Uh, under Republicans, 4.7%. And they had 36 years. Now, that's a stark difference in the appreciation of value of the stock market uh, for anybody who has any savings or investments in the stock market. Uh, if you took $10,000 invested it only during the 32 years that uh, Democrats were president, and did the same with another $10,000 under Republican presidents over 36 years. So this is not just a slice of look what happened last year. Uh, your Republican invested $10,000 would now be worth $48,788. That's a 400% increase. So you would say, oh, that's, not, that's not pretty good. Under Democrats, that $10,000 over 32 years, invested only when Democrats were president, it would be worth $268,683. That's a, about a seven-fold uh, uh, difference. 
to the good for people. Last figure I'm going to give you, I got a number of other figures on here. Uh, the last figure I want to give you, again, 36 years Republicans were president, interspersed, 32 years Democrats dispersed. During the course, and, and, and I'm not one that believes that government creates jobs. What government creates is an environment in which people are prepared to take risk and create jobs. It's not government that creates the jobs, but creates the environment. The sense of confidence in the economy. During the 36 years, four more years than Democrats had, there were 35,448,000 jobs created under, Dem under Republicans. Under Democrats? And you can go to these figures. They're all, you know, you just Google them. Uh, 62,669,000. Not quite double, but about 30 million more jobs were created under Democrats. Now, what, what's the relevance of that? The relevance is, look, I can say I'm going to give you a better deal or, you know, better wages, better jobs, a better future. But forget about what I say. Hire the 325 hitter for five years. Not the hitter who hit 325 last year, but hit 240 the four years before that. Democrats have done what we said we would do. Why? Because we believe investing in government. We believe investing in people's education, in, in infrastructure, in protection of the environment, in health care. We believe in that. Uh, we also, by the way, believe in, in, in balancing the, uh, the budget. Uh, and my Republican friends would say, the hell you say? Look what you guys have done. In fact, the only time the budget was balanced four years in a row was under Bill Clinton in your lifetime. The only time. But Steny, pardon me for interrupting. Yep. I mean, are you of the belief then that the keys to the kingdom can be handed to the Democrats if they go to the electorate and say, we are statistically better for you than Republicans? I mean, do you think that... that um, that uh, that those those uh, statistics seem unassailable, but do you think it'll be persuasive, uh, realistically, for Democrats just to say you need to hire us because we've always done better for you? Uh, no, I think they need to hire us because we have a plan to make their lives better, and they and they need to believe in that plan. Now, Trump didn't have a plan, but Trump said we're going to make America great again. My view, sort of like the Brexit vote, uh, the English. Americans didn't think their life was great. There were a whole lot of us living in this country who didn't think our lives were what we wanted. And Trump to understood that seemingly. Yeah. Viscerally, he seemed to get it in a way right. that the Democrats did not. I think, I think we were too mired in uh, specific uh, white papers. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's, you know, every election is an individual election. My own view, and I was very much a strong supporter of Hillary Clinton's. I went around the country and campaigned for her. I was amazed at the level of enmity that was directed towards Hillary. I think 25% of the vote uh, that Trump got was not for Trump, but I can't vote for Hillary. I think that, that's my, and 25% is just a guess. It may have been 30, it may have been 20%. But it was a significant portion of the electorate who I talked to who said, I just don't trust Hillary, da da da, and who thought Hillary's just more of the same. Now, frankly, more of the same, the irony for a Democrat is, uh, we went from the deepest recession under George Bush that anybody had experienced at less than 90 years of age, because you hadn't experienced the Depression, uh, to an economy which was, had low unemployment, 
uh, and uh, was a growing economy. The stock market had doubled uh, in value uh, from George Bush, uh, may maybe almost tripled in value. And uh, so things were going pretty well. But that was the case in, under Clinton and Gore, and Gore lost. And it was the case. Well, under and, and wasn't the problem Obama. also that that president? I mean, that Democrats found themselves in a position of defending uh, against Republican attacks um, the Obama recovery, the economic recovery, and saying actually, you know, we've done all of these things, essentially citing some of the statistics you have, and thereby um, developing kind of a blind spot along the way for people who were feeling a great deal of economic yeah. anxiety, who were left out of the recovery. And we said some dumb things. We said the deplorables, which was like uh, Romney's 47 percent, you know. We said we we're going to put coal miners out of business. We're not going to put coal miners out of business. Natural gas and uh, solar and water is putting uh, coal miners out of business. So the head of the coal industry said we're not going to build any more coal plants. He's not going to build more coal plants, not because of Democrats or Republicans' policies, but because of the, of the market. Right. Natural gas is just a, a too big a competitor uh, for them. But uh, we, we, we have to get over this sense uh, that millions of our people feel that we elites, Republican and Democrat, because the elites in the Republican Party lost too. And Hillary was part of the elites and Hillary was part of the same old. Been there, done that. And they wanted something new. Uh, and we have got to uh, reconnect with those folks and say, look, not only are we saying we care about you, the point of my card is, talk is cheap. You know, look at what we've done. And look at what we say we want to do. And the, I think we're going to win the 2018 election. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Because the, the, the bad news for Democrats in 2016 is the good news for Democrats in 2018, which is Donald Trump. And uh, the, there's been a lot of talk recently about... Um, uh, Chuck and Nancy, uh, which is a proxy for the question, should Democrats work with President Trump? There's a view that, that um, uh, look, the electorate wants to see that Democrats are a party of governance, that they're capable of helping uh, get the country and get, frankly, um, the Republicans out of this mess. There's another side that says, no, don't give President Trump any wins. Let the Republicans twist in the wind and run on that in 2018. Uh, what's your view? I think when McConnell said, uh, when asked, what's your objective over the next four years, my objective is that Obama will not have a second term. What that said to the American people is, I'm not worried about whether you have a job, whether you have education, whether we bring down unemployment, whether we defend the country. I'm really focused on whether we beat Obama. If the Democrats take the same position, fie on us. I've told people, you know, Donald Trump, President Trump says, I want a health care uh, bill that covers everybody, is cheaper, and has higher quality. He sends that bill down, I'm voting for it. Uh, I think the American people ought to take it out on anybody who says, I won't work uh, with Donald Trump simply because he's Donald Trump. If Donald Trump has a good idea that will help the American people and help our country, then I think Democrats ought to support it. Has, does and any idea like that come to mind? Well, I mean, that he has himself that has come from the White House. Well, what what happened uh, that got some of this controversy about Chuck and Nancy uh, about was he said he'll said he'll sign the DACA bill. Right. I, I think that's a good idea. I'm for signing the DACA bill. I think that uh, sending DACA kids uh, home uh, from the only country they really know uh, makes no sense for them or for right. us. 
and so if he'll sign that, hooray for him. There's the if, though. He came out of the meeting and faced the press and said, there's been no deal, there's been no deal, leading to the question of, of can you trust this president, particularly when he may say what <laughs> you guys want to hear, but then will um, you know, attend to his base, and once he feels their wrath or their discontent, um, reverse himself. Can you trust him? Uh, he has not been the uh, paragon of consistency that uh, you would like, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, and I don't think anybody knows, including his staff, if he says thing one hour that he's going to say the same thing the next hour. However, he's the President of the United States. We have to deal with him. And, uh, you know, if we pass a bill and send it to him, we'll see. Uh, Paul Ryan says he wants to protect the DACA. Uh, if the DACA bill came to the floor, uh, I prefer the, DACA, the Dream, Dream Act, mm -hmm. which is what we, what we talked to the President about. If the Dream Act comes to the floor, it'll pass. Lindsey Graham and Mark Rubio say it will pass the Senate, which means they think they have 12 Republicans who will vote with all the Democrats. Uh, getting it to the floor is the issue. Uh, Paul Ryan said he wanted to have a transparent uh, Congress uh, that took issues one at a time, and they would not duck the tough issues. Paul Ryan ought to put the uh, DREAM Act on the floor. Uh, we'll have 194 Democrats vote for it, right. every one of our Democrats. Yeah. And I, I can't believe that we won't have 30 or 40 or 50 Republicans vote for it. As a matter of fact, I've had one Republican friend of mine say uh, that if it comes to the floor, it'll get close to 300 votes, because a lot of Republicans will vote for it. Uh, we're not doing that, unfortunately. Uh, the ACA is a perfect example uh, of a bill uh, that they criticized us for not having full and open discussion. We had over 200 hearings, as you know, and a lot of amendments Republicans and Democrats offered. Uh, Ultimately, the Republicans decided to all oppose it. Grassley decided not to work with Baucus uh, into getting to a bipartisan bill. And so we passed it in a partisan fashion. And we passed it in a, in a clumsy fashion in that we didn't go to conference and perfect it. The, the ACA needs to be fixed. It's not working perfectly for small business. It's not working well for people on the individual market, which is about 6% of the people. We need to fix it. We need to fix it in a bipartisan way. What we don't need to do is jettison it and knock 20-plus million people off of having Well, insurance. since you've brought up the ACA and also brought up a better deal, I was there in Berryville, Virginia, when a better deal was rolled out and mm -hmm. when the pamphlets were handed out saying what this included. And among the things it included was the policy position that drug prices should be renegotiated for, um, for Medicare. Now, as you well know, ACA was passed. Uh, in no small measure due to the support of pharma. How was that support of pharma secured? Through a backstage deal engineered by Harry Reid in which it was understood that there would be no renegotiation of prices and that there would be no uh, reimportation of drugs. The Democrats are now essentially saying uh, that was a bad deal and uh, we believe we can pass a superior version of health care um, without pharma's help. Do you think that's possible? I think it's possible. Uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily the position of the Democratic Party now. I think we do believe that negotiation of prices uh, uh, clearly saves them, uh, a lot of money for the Veterans Administration. Uh, is something that ought to be on the table but, but because prescription drugs costs uh, are driving uh, costs along with diagnostic tools and we're living longer. Those three components are probably the three major components. But you lose pharma support when you do that. Uh, 
maybe you do and maybe you don't. So uh, you Billy, think that Billy, Obama and Harry Reid negotiated a bad deal with Farmer? No, they I didn't could say have that. A better one? That was Billy Tozan. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, they thought he didn't do such a good deal because he's no longer with them. Right. Um, Billy Tozan was a Republican former chairman of the, one of our committees that dealt with drug prices and went to pharma. Right. Um, what I am saying is that uh, the ACA was not perfect. One of the reasons it was not perfect is because Republicans would not vote in the Senate. We didn't have 60 votes to go to conference. So it was passed through reconciliation, which is a clumsy, limited process, which the Republicans are now finding out about. It appears they're not going to be able to repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act, which they've been promising for seven years, which is why they're so roiled internally uh, in their party. Uh, what I'm saying is Democrats are prepared to work with and want to work with Republicans uh, uh, consistent with John McCain's sort of mantra of the only way you do really good things is in a bipartisan way. Uh, that's the way tax reform was done in 1986, last time it was done, big bill. Uh, so w we need to work together because medical costs are going up too rapidly uh, and we've got to con contain them. There are provisions in the Affordable Care Act which try to do that. Uh, but uh, we and we have to some degree uh, slowed the growth, but we haven't gotten to where we need to get. And farmers, providers, hospitals, docs, patients, advocacy groups all have to be involved in that discussion of how we do that, uh, and still provide for the uh, a quality healthcare product to be available and accessible to our people. Right. Now, you mentioned 2018 and how you believe actually that could be a year for the Democrats that you guys could take back the House. And history does favor you, um, not only because it tends to be the case historically that in the first term of a president that uh, in that midterm right. they, they lose a lot of seats, but also that a president who comes in with less than 50% of the popular vote is that much more susceptible to a wave election. I asked one of your star um, members, uh, Sherry Bustos, yeah, uh, if great. she thought there was any way the Democrats could blow this opportunity, and she said yes, if, if, uh, if they <laughs> insist on a litmus test. They insist on a litmus test for uh, Democratic recruits who fit their, uh, uh, their districts well. She actually mentioned Brendan Kelly of downstate Illinois, superstar candidate in a lot of ways, but he's pro-life, he's pro-gun. There are progressive groups who say, you know, actually, the problem with the Democrats is that they've tried to be too much of everything for everybody and have succeeded in being nothing at all. They've been banal, they've been vanilla. We need bold, um, uh, exciting um, progressives who will run on a progressive agenda, and we can't once again uh, just be the party that's only about winning. Um, those, in fact, are two very stark views. They, they are not compatible, and I'm wondering which side you're likeliest to sit on. The former. I'm with Sherry Bustos. Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi is with Sherry Bustos. Stanley Hoyer is with Sherry Bustos. We're a broad tent party, and we have a, a cement in our party and it has always been the cement of our party, trying to make life for the greatest number of people uh, the best it can possibly be. That's our litmus test. Uh, not uh, some other issues, some of which you mentioned. Abortion, uh, obviously most Democrats are pro-choice. Not every uh, Democrat's uh, pro-life. And Nancy, I think, said it best uh, when asked that. She said, you know, I'm from a Catholic family in Baltimore, and there are a whole lot of my family that are pro-life. I'm going to tell them they can't be Democrats? Forget it. Uh, that's not elusive. I'm the whip. We do not whip that issue. That is an issue on which each person has to decide for themselves based upon their 
moral compass what they believe is the best policy. Uh, Democrats, we have a lot of conservative Democrats, not as many as we, we need to get back. We need to get back a lot of blue dogs. I was going to ask, you, you say you're a Big Tent party, but the blue dog coalition has really dwindled it's in the last It's down to about cycles. 15 or 16 or 17. It was 56 or so at one point? It or? was 56 in, in the 2008. Yeah. Uh, so we need to get those back. And why are they Democrats? It would be easier for them to get elected in those districts as Republicans. But they're not because they don't believe the Republican Party is for the little guys that they, they, they feel strongly about. They really don't. And you look at it uh, issue after issue. Uh, the Republican Party essentially believes, in my view, as a principle, that uh, people are better off if government just gets out of the way. Well, in, in car safety, if government had just gotten out of the way, you wouldn't have seatbelts. Uh, if you flew on airplanes, you'd, you'd still have smoke on airplanes. Uh, uh, healthcare is safer because of government uh, regulations. Um, and let me give you a stark example. Sandy, you've just had Harvey here. Sandy hit the Northeast. 55 million people were put at risk. We had a bill to uh, give uh, sustenance and help to the people of the Northeast, and 49 Republicans voted for it, and over 170 voted against it. Every Democrat voted for it. Why? Because we think we're in this together, and we needed to give help, and that government has a role to play. That's why the conservative Democrat from Texas, Charlie Stenholm, I don't know how many of you remember sure. Charlie Stenholm. Charlie Stenholm is one of the best members uh, with whom I've ever served, a man of great intellect, and great patience, and he argued his position. He didn't get mad at people if they disagreed with him. He was wonderful to work with. He was savaged in the campaign. Tom DeLay et al. Uh, savaged in the campaign. And, and he's no longer in the Congress. Uh, I, I'm very much one of those people who thinks we need to get to fiscal balance, and that will take some courageous uh, actions on behalf of the politicians. Uh, and Charlie was one of the leaders. And, and one of the founders of the Blue Dogs. And yeah. one of the founders of the Blue Dogs. He was a real Democrat. Yeah. And he was a real Democrat because he had farmers, small farmers, uh, you know, in, in his district that he cared about and wanted to make sure they got a fair deal and a better deal. And we call it a better deal. And the, and a, and the better deal, better wages, better jobs, uh, better future, I think is a good mantra for us. And we're going to put a lot of stuff under that. Infrastructure, education, health care, environment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, tr tr job training, because we need to get, we're losing jobs because of uh, robots and other things, and we need to train those people to do uh, different jobs so they can be employed and be able to support their families. But uh, I think that we are a broad tent party and litmus tests, uh, obviously a litmus test, love your country, work hard, you know, uh, do the right things in Congress in terms of handling yourself in a way that brings credit to the Congress, but not necessarily voting the way I want them to vote or Nancy Pelosi. They represent their people. And I tell people when I recruit them, you represent your district. I'm the whip. I'm going to come and ask you to vote for A, B, or C, but ultimately you have to make the decision to represent your district. So I'm in very strongly in the camp. We don't have a litmus test uh, for uh, the issues that you were talking about. 
people have to make their own determinations and represent their districts. So let me ask, and I'm going to ask one more question and then throw it open to the audience for questions, but uh, you're against a litmus test. Let me ask you if you're for a hierarchy test, because uh, the Republicans, <laughs> when, uh, when they took over the House in 1994, Newt Gingrich did a lot of things people found controversial, and history will judge him maybe in a checkerboard kind of way, in a checkered way, but, but, uh, uh, but one thing that he's done that I've never heard anybody complain about on either side of the aisle is he abolished the seniority system um, for um, committee chairmanships. Uh, the Democrats, um, however, still have that, and uh, 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 and uh, and for that matter, they have a leadership chain that, at the top of it, um, is filled with, shall we say, veteran members, including yourself, Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn. Veteran members, he meant yeah. to say, but he was very veterans. diplomatic. Veterans, <laughs> veterans. <laughs> We're genteel in Texas, but uh, uh, it's. Um, uh, speaking of Texas, there is a congressman named Beto O'Rourke who uh, is now running f uh, against um, Ted Cruz for the U.S. Senate. Uh, he had told me a couple of years ago, he said, you know, the, um, younger, restless members of Congress and the Democratic Party are, uh, wonder where's the future for us. When are we ever, even if the, uh, we ever get the uh, majority back, when are we ever going to get committee chairmanships? When are we ever going to stand any chance of being speaker or majority leader ourselves? And so I'm wondering... Um, if you think, particularly given uh, the Democratic Party's view of itself as the party for young Americans, that this is a healthy thing for the Democratic Party, and would you, for example, be willing to revisit the notion of, uh, of a seniority system for committee chairmanships? Well, first of all, Robert, the seniority system is not sacrosanct. Uh, you're not automatically a committee chair or a subcommittee chair because of seniority. It is a very strong, informative uh, criteria, however, uh, on the theory that you've got more experience and you've been there. But uh, on, a, on a number of occasions, Richie Neal's the, the uh, ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee. He's not the senior member on the committee. Uh, Elijah Cummings, not the senior member on the committee. He's, he's uh, uh, the ranking member on the Energy, uh, not the Energy, the, the uh, Government Oversight uh, Committee. Uh, so we've seen a number of instances where, uh, although you were the senior member, uh, the caucus made a judgment that you would not be the ranking member or the chairman. I, I think that's really what it ought to be. The seniority system is informative so that you do not have a constant uh, churning of the committee uh, for political, trying, having political races for the chairmanship or something. Uh, the senior member, if the senior member is able, the senior member is doing his or her work, uh, then the senior member gets uh, sort of the, the, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but it is not, uh, for instance, uh, I'd be the speaker if the, if the seniority system, because I'm the senior member uh, among uh, Democrats next to John Conyers. Uh, so I think the seniority system uh, was jettisoned by the Republicans uh, in one sense because they had such an overwhelming victory uh, in 1994 when Gingrich eliminated. They, they didn't have a lot of senior members, and the senior members they had were using the moderate members that were in disfavor, i.e. Bob Michael left the Congress. Mm -hmm, right. Bob Michael, who I think was one of the best leaders I've seen, who was a bipartisan consensus builder and a constructive not destructive, not negative force in the Congress of the United States. But to Gingrich, he was viewed as being a little too comfortable being in the minority. He was, he wanted to be the confrontationalist. He wanted to be the disruptor, if you will. And, and, and that's fine. You need disruption. 
But you need at some point in time to be able to sit down and say, okay, you've got this view, I have this view. If we're going to move, we need to get to our view, which requires consensus. And that was not what, that, that doesn't make great news. Oh, they, they made a right. deal. That's in that way. What makes great news is when they're confronting. Sure. Uh, and Gingrich was a confronter and a destabilizer. The interesting thing is when Gingrich decided to be a cooperator, i.e. work on a budget with Bill no, Clinton. They, they chewed him up. They chewed him up. Yeah. They didn't like that. Yeah. Their party does not like compromise and, and constructive action. They like confrontation because their base believes if you're not confronting, you're selling out. And that's not good for our they democracy. Want, they want fighters. And that's why the board of directors of the greatest country on earth is not working well, i.e. the Congress of the United States. Right. Well, so, but to the broader question of whether the Democratic Party is doing a good enough job of um, making um, its young stars feel like they are vital members of the institution of the party. Do you feel like they could do a better job? I think we're doing a good job, and I think we, we, we did a better job in, in this last organizing session because we expanded greatly the leadership, as you know, with a lot of, you, know, you mentioned Sherry Bustos, but there's David uh, Cicilline, Cicilline, Hakeem Jeffries right. uh, from New York, Tony Cardenas from California, uh, uh, Ben Ray Lujan, the chairman. These are all young people. Uh, so I think we have brought in a lot of young people. I'm the whip. Uh, th three of my whips are in, uh, less than three terms. Yeah. Uh, and uh, chief deputy whips. Again, Joaquin Castro from your state uh, is, is a chief deputy whip. Terry Sewell from Alabama, uh, a chief deputy whip. Uh, uh, a number of other, Keith Ellison, uh, a, a newer member our chief deputy whips. So I think we are doing that, but there's no doubt you have these 370 year olds who are at the top of the bottle and the neck of the bottle and they're saying, you know, hey, these guys are pretty old. Not Nancy, of course, she's not pretty old, but uh, <laughs> Clyburn and I. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, and this is self-serving, I understand that, I don't think there is any consensus on, therefore we need to replace Nancy, Stenny, or Jim with A, B, or C. And the reason for that is, uh, now I'm 78 years of age. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I'm 78. I don't hope I don't act like I'm 78. I don't know what 78 means to act like. But when I was 18, I thought 78. You know, I'd be, you know, limping around, and if I was around. All right. uh, and I think I don't know how many of you saw Nancy Pelosi, but I don't know many 78-year-old women who wouldn't trade uh, uh, to be Nancy Pelosi. Uh, both in, in figure, but much more importantly, in energy and focus uh, and on top of it. Right, but you mentioned that A, B, and C, you don't see any A, B, and C wanting to, um, you know, re replace you three guys. That's I, didn't say, I, I didn't say they, weren't, they didn't want to, but I said I think there's no consensus no consensus, in part because neither A nor B nor C wants to go up against Nancy Pelosi, uh, who's a pretty, pretty uh, tough politician uh, towards people who... She's as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she and I have differences, as I think probably some of you who are in the know. Yeah. You know, we differ from time to time, but that, that's normal. Sure. Uh, but generally speaking, I think uh, Nancy is, first of all, she's indefatigable. Right. Uh, secondly, she's very effective. Uh, and so, uh, 
you know, she's been an effective leader. She's effective, but also that's, I mean, that we saw in the special elections in 2017, John Ossoff in Georgia 6, for example, that uh, yet again, Republicans trotted out hundreds of thousands of dollars of negative ads um, tying him to Nancy Pelosi, despite the fact that the two had never met each other, I believe. Uh, the Republicans still think that's a winning issue. Leaving aside what you think about Nancy Pelosi's skills, leaving aside what she should be a minority leader, do you think that that unfortunately just comes with the territory of running for the House when you're a Democratic recruit that you're going to have what some people see as the quintessence of the San Francisco limousine liberal uh, wrapped around your neck. I think, I think Nancy is easy to caricature and that's what the Republicans have done. So I think that's... Uh, Caricatures work, right? Caricatures that, that has worked in, in some instances yeah. and that's why the Republicans keep using it. Right. Uh, it is, a, but it's a caricature. It's not Nancy, uh, and uh, you know I go to those districts all the time and uh, and receive well in, right. in those districts. No, I mean uh, to be fair, so I have not different. seen any ad saying that these people vote like Steny Hoyer and are going to be like Steny Hoyer. So there's a distinction. Uh, I've, um, any questions from the audience? Anybody? Yes. Sure. So I hear a lot of talk about the better deal, um, but how are we communicating it? So I have kind of a two-pronged question. You know, how are we communicating it in terms of the average person? I mean, you rattled off a lot of statistics. That's a whole lot of policy speak. Um, and for those of us here in the room, that's great. But the person sitting at their kitchen table trying to balance the checkbook, that's another matter. <laughs> how are we communicating that in layman's terms and in ways that make sense and get them out to vote? I think uh, somebody mentioned to me last night the contract with America and how that really resonated with people. Uh, and I would ask each one of you, what was the contract with America? What was passed in the contract of America? And you would find very little of it. Uh, we had for six for 06. When we took over the majority, we adopted five of those uh, uh, six. Uh, but what we're trying to do is come up with a headline. Hakeem Jeffrey talks about a headline. And the headline is better deal, better jobs, better wages, better future. Now all that is is a headline. And then you've got to read the story. Okay, how do you get that? How do you do it? Uh, the first objective was to get everybody to be talking about the headline. What are Democrats talking about? We're talking about a better deal. Okay, Hoyer, you're talking about a better what is that better deal? And then I will talk about we need to invest uh, in education to make sure that our kids' education is as good as it can be at every level from uh, the beginning uh, to a graduate degree. Uh, secondly, not only education but better training. The types of jobs people are doing are different. I have a, an agenda that we started in 2010 called Make It in America. Uh, that Make in America did not become the headline, uh, better job, better deal, better jobs, etc. But Make it in America will be a subset for me, and that's what I will convey to people, because that's what people want to do in America. They want to make it. Not only do we want to make it in terms of manufacturing it, but we want to succeed, which is uh, Make it in America. Uh, so we also need to invest in job training, which, which is what I said. We need to in invest in infrastructure. Uh, in job creation, but also infrastructure which creates jobs. And in fact, we have done that, that's my, that's my, my card, 
that my staff says, don't use that with people because it will just glaze over. I get that. Uh, but uh, investing in the environment. We believe, for instance, that uh, clean energy creates clean jobs. And we believe many of the oil companies are investing in clean energy because they see that as a transition as well. That doesn't mean we're not going to be using fossil fuel. Uh, so we have to flesh it out so that the people that you're talking about sitting around the kitchen table say, boy, if they're going to build some new roads and new bridges and, and uh, a new infrastructure, new water systems and a new grid, boy, I'm, I'm going to get that kind of a job and that's going to be a good job for me for the next 10, 15, 25 years. Uh, they have to feel that it's going to affect them positively. And we need to make sure that as we convey this, we convey a respect for what they're going to be doing and how that's going to make America better. Which is a kind of visceral proposition, right? Yep. I mean, you mentioned you know the, a better deal and, and make it in America. There have also been, you mentioned 6 for 06, but there was reigniting the American dream. There was ladders of success. There was when women succeed, America succeeds. All of these were attempts, um, usually by um, uh, Leader Pelosi, uh, to have a democratic headline. Why is this so important? And why are Democrats having such difficulty explaining themselves? Um, you know, I, I don't feel that I have a tough time complaining, uh, explaining uh, the democratic agenda because I think the democratic agenda has been so successful during the 36 years that I've been in Congress. And the Republican agenda has not. I don't think any of the Republican administrations have been nearly as successful. So I really try to get back to, forget about what I say, forget about these headlines, and you, you, you don't trust the politicians talking anyway. Look at the record. Don't have some guy come in and say, look, I can hit 340. Uh, did you hit 340? Well, no, I haven't, but I know that I can hit 340. You know, my Republican friends say they're going to do all this, uh, and George Bush said tax cut of 01, 03 was going to grow the economy. But I think the speaker, wasn't the speaker like talking about the, the um, statistical articulations notwithstanding, this is about connecting the folks. Exactly. Which is why I said that the, the, we need to make sure, and Hillary did not connect. I really like Hillary. I think she would have been an excellent president. I, I campaigned very hard for her. I don't think she connected. Unlike Bill Clinton, who connected. Uh, people just didn't think she got them. Uh, and I think that was a problem. Uh, but that was a personal problem. But the fact of the matter, and, and I don't know, I, I don't get how Trump connected. He disconnected with me, disconnected with my daughters. My daughters were all appalled. But obviously he connected with a lot of people. Why? Because they thought what had been happening wasn't helping them. He was changed, and he was going to kick all the rest of us who looked down on them in the butt. That's what I think happened. Yeah. And he also appealed, uh, and we Democrats, in many respects, have rejected, uh, this may be somewhat controversial, but uh, rejected appeal to the worst instincts as opposed to appealing to the best instincts. And when you appeal to the worst instincts, that can be a very powerful appeal. And... Uh, it started with, uh, in 1972, in my opinion, the silent majority. Uh, the people who are forgotten and you, 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 they, the don't, they, they don't care with you, the southern strategy. 
And very frankly, it worked. It took 30 some odd years to work, but it worked. And really it started in 48 when Humphrey said, we're no longer gonna be the segregationist party. And Strom Thurmond took a walk. Uh, and started the Dixiecrat. And then he didn't switch parties then, but transitioned over time. He, he, he went to the other party. Right. Uh, go, go ahead, ma'am. Hi. Um, the Graham-Cassidy bill? Yes. Um, I think there's a general feeling in America that people who are on Medicaid got there because they're substance abusers or they didn't take care of themselves somehow. And yet, a lot of people were born disabled, and they may even work, but they need attendant care and so forth. And I'm just wondering if there's ever going to be an explanation or a platform to show who's really on Medicaid so that maybe we could defeat this bill. Your 70% opinion, of people on Medicaid are because they got old. Yeah. Nursing homes. Nursing homes, which Medicaid was never designed to be the, the nursing home, but 70%. Uh, of uh, Medicaid dollars go to seniors who have become uh, Medicaid eligible as they've spent down their savings uh, because they're in a, uh, in a nursing home. Uh, children, uh, and yes, those with uh, disabilities. Uh, and we are fighting very hard to uh, protect that uh, and Medicare. Well, let me say something. This will be a little controversial. Uh, we need to get a handle on our entitlement programs. And we need to protect the vulnerable. Uh, but very frankly, if Steny Hoyer's Social Security was adversely affected, Steny Hoyer's life would not be affected. If $1,000 of the Social Security that I have went to a widow who's surviving on $18,000, it would make a big difference in her life and none in mine. We need to deal with that. We can't pretend that we can have uh, entitlement programs that are unattended to we need to protect the vulnerable. Now, the vulnerable in my part, it, it very frankly, might sound high to you. We stopped paying Social Security around $120,000. Uh, I don't think everybody making 100000 is vulnerable. I don't mean that. But, you know, if you're going to make a, a test, okay, 120. But uh, there's no reason Ross Perot uh, needs to get Social Security uh, or Bill Gates needs to get Social Security. Uh, uh, and I know there are some of my liberal friends who are afraid if you, if you, uh, in effect, make some sort of means test to it, uh, it will lose its support. Uh, I think that would be, I think that's a bad statement about all of us. Uh, you know, my, if your mom and dad is on Social Security, but you, you, you've done very well and you don't go on Social Security, you're still happy that your mom and dad uh, have Medicare and Social Security, which keeps them out of poverty. And very frankly, at a time when you're in your 40s and you're paying for your kids' college education so they're not deeply in debt, the fact that your mom and dad have Social Security and Medicare makes you able to take care of your children rather than take care of your parents. Yeah. Uh, we need to deal with, we don't, we don't, how many people heard anybody, any presidential candidate in the last election talk about fiscal sustainability and fiscal discipline? No debate about that. Why? Because it's tough. And frankly, you've got to do it in a bipartisan way and there's no bipartisanship right now. Uh, I've reached out to Paul Ryan to try to talk to him about uh, working on some of these. I uh, haven't had success yet, but I'm going to keep trying. Yes, please, uh, This side. Over there. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Didn't see you guys over there. Have at it. Uh, there's been a lot of talk now in the country about putting country before party. Is there not, shouldn't there be also a time 
when leadership sacrifices for the party, in this case in the House. You spoke of the bottleneck of the seniority system of the members who are sort of at a choke point and new young leadership is not rising. And it seems to me that it's soon going to be time that perhaps you and Ms. Pelosi and others have to make this sacrifice to bring new flesh and blood and life to the party. And I'm 72, so I'm right up there with you. <laughs> well, whippersnapper. <laughs> understand, if, if, if I leave, it's not going to be a sacrifice because I'll do a lot better economically. Good. So, I mean, I don't think I'd make it a sacrifice. Uh, very frankly, uh, I think the members will make a determination. We, we, we know age. I, I'm 78. That's an age. Uh, I don't think most members think I've slowed down. I don't think most, I travel a lot. I raise a lot of money for, for members. Uh, I think I articulate our message reasonably well on television. My members seem to think so as well. Uh, when I, but I've seen members who stayed too long. Uh, and I'm not going to stay too long. When my body tells me you're not on top of it, I'm, I'm leaving. Uh, and I'm not going to be probably around too much longer anyway. <laughs> uh, but my point to you is I don't think there is a consensus. Nancy ought to go. Uh, there's 63 people who, who voted for uh, uh, Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan. I don't think those were 63 votes for Tim Ryan for speaker. They were, they were a statement. <clears throat> and I think when I talk to my members, uh, my members uh, uh, are pretty supportive of what I do still for them and uh, as the whip, as keeping our party together, as articulating uh, our positions. Uh, but, and so I don't think age is the only criteria. It's, it's image. It's what the people see as well, the leadership Let's of the party the getting old and tired. Who's the most popular politician in America right now? You tell me. Bernie Sanders. I'm not sure of that. Oh, go ahead. You, you, the polls show that he's <laughs> the, the most. Then, yeah. The polls show that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying he is the most popular. It's not my view. Right. Uh, what I'm saying to you is when you asked who is... Why is he respected? He's respected because A, he's not with a special interest, he's independent, he says what he believes, you know, and he's, he, he, they, people believe he's for them. He understands them, he's for them. Uh, he's 75 years of age. He's viewed as anti-establishment. Yeah, he's anti-establishment. So it wasn't, it's not the age criteria, it is who he is, what he is, what he represents. Uh, that, that's, that was my only point by saying that. Uh, you know, I, I think I get it, and I think that it is a, an issue, and I think we ought to uh, move on. And that uh, uh, you know, everybody's got their own view as to who move, moves on when. It's going to just a couple more questions, and go ahead, sir. Uh, Representative Foyer, you spoke about broad tent versus progressive ideals in terms of winning back the House in 2018. Yeah. But it seems we're forgetting about the gerrymandering issue. The uh, uh, Cook political um, report has a say that says that. Democrats would have to win by six or seven percent in the popular vote to win back the House. Is that feasible in 2018? Well, the good news is we're six or seven generic points up now. Uh, we, we're up a little more. Uh, there is no doubt that redistricting has made uh, these the switches 
uh, more difficult. Not only has redistricting made us winning uh, a little more difficult, but also uh, we have created uh, so many districts in which a member has to listen to only one side of the argument. That's a problem. That's a problem because if I'm in a red district, I listen to red arguments because the blue arguments yeah. don't matter. Right. If I'm in a blue district, I don't have to listen to red arguments. I mean, I can listen to them, but I don't have to respond in any way, so I have to seek consensus because I'm in a blue district. What we have done is two things. Number one, politically, we have, through technology, been able to predict almost with uh, mathematical certainty the outcome of an election uh, in a configured district because we know who they are and what they are and what, how they vote. Uh, the second thing is we have, by choice, segregated ourselves uh, uh, by ideology. And we segregate ourselves by ideology of what we believe every night when we watch television. When I grew up, uh, I'm starting to look at television news and getting interested in, in, in I watched three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. I watched Walter Cronkite, Frank Reynolds, uh, Huntley Brinkley, uh, you name it. They had, they had a job that they thought was to inform the American public of what happened that day or that week or that year. And frankly, you could listen to all three networks and get almost exactly the same message. None of them believed their uh, responsibility was to incite the public as opposed to informing it. Now, we segregate ourselves for an hour, half an hour. Some people, you know, just chill out all day on MSNBC or Fox News or whatever you want, and they get their juices running. And they're incited to not like the other position. Or told that the reason these facts happened was because the other side made a mistake or did bad things. That was not true in the in the 50s and 60s. It's also true, though, that geographically people are moving to yes. where they want to move, and That's Democrats I mean. even more so, that, that your votes are spread much less efficiently coast to than, coast. say, Republicans. Yeah, and we, I mean, we have two blues and a red in the middle. That's not good for the country. Uh, now, obviously, we're in a city that is not necessarily uh, all red. Uh, pretty blue city in, in, in some respects. But... Generally speaking, we have demographically segregated ourselves, which is what you're saying. Right, yeah. And that's guys, not good. Guys, I'm afraid we're out of time. Sorry about that, but maybe um, the Congress will be so good as to, maybe. to chat with some of you guys afterwards. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Steny Horton, for quick coming one? up. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do it quick. I'll do it quick. Okay, yeah, yeah sure. If, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we talk a lot about the 2018, but if there's ever been a time to talk about 2020, it's probably this presidency. What should the Democratic uh, presidential strategy be? You know, last uh, election cycle we had two pretty strong candidates in the Democratic Party that kind of split the party, and then you had the Republicans run out 400 candidates at once. What should the strategy be going forward in 2020? Get behind one candidate or kind of follow the Republican playbook there? Uh, would that it was as simple as we could just say, well, we're going to pick one candidate. A, who picks? The bosses, the, you know, the pals, the special delegates, or the super delegates, as, as some people call them. Uh, who picks? You know, we have a primary system, uh, and uh, that largely determines who the nominee is going to be. And notwithstanding Bernie's concern about the superdelegates, 
uh, it was the publicly elected delegates that determined that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee. And, and frankly, that's been the case in every one of the elections since the, uh, uh, the delegates. I, I, I personally am a proponent of making sure that the people uh, who are in elected office, your governors, your, your mayors, your members of Congress, who frankly, as soon as the convention's over, all the counts are going to come to them and say, hey, can you help me organize your district or your congressional or, or your state? Uh, I think that's a good thing. But uh, it, it is, it's, it's somewhat of an organic uh, operation. Uh, nobody would have thought him, uh, Bill Clinton was going to be, uh, excuse me, uh, that Barack Obama, I have trouble getting to Trump, uh, that Donald Trump would be president of the United States a, a year before the election. Nobody. Maybe Donald Trump. No. Nobody else thought that Donald Trump Not was going to be president. No. A year or a year and a half before the election, nobody thought that Bernie Sanders was going to be a major candidate for president who, and raise an extraordinary amount of money and come very close uh, to beating Hillary Clinton. Uh, so that it's organic. I don't think we know. I have a, a, the first candidate in is John Delaney from Maryland. He's a wonderful guy, a thoughtful guy. I think he will bring a very thoughtful uh, uh, tenor to the debate. Uh, I don't know that he has a chance in the world, but I didn't think Trump had a chance in the world, so who knows what's happening. Now, I will give you some insight into my view. Uh, I think there is merit in not having one of the elected politicians be our candidate. I don't have a person in mind, uh, but I uh, think that clearly people are frustrated. Their board of, work, board of, public, board of uh, directors does not work. If I was an average citizen uh, watching the Congress of the United States uh, at, wor at work or not at work, I would be disgusted. There are about 8 or 9, 10% of the American public have any respect for the Congress of the United States. I want to find those people. They ought to have none. I tell you. I am frustrated as a practitioner, as somebody who was president of the Maryland Senate for 12 years now, 36 years in the Congress. It's not working the way the public deserves and our country deserves to have it run. We ought to be cooperating with one another and trying to make uh, agreements, not try to simply undermine uh, one another at every turn. That's not good for our country. It's not good for my three daughters, my uh, three grandchildren, or my four great-grandchildren. I'm disgusted with it. Americans ought to be disgusted with it. And Americans can make it, can change it, by electing people to the Congress of the United States who are, who are and are perceived as acting constructively to reach consensus and agreement in a democracy. They get their shot next year. We'll yep. see. Thanks, guys. <clears throat>